Well, you see this, uh, this title slide up here that says, Jesus and a Pluralistic Society. And I debated whether or not to actually use that. When I started outlining this series some, uh, a couple of months or so ago, uh, I knew what I wanted to do there. But then when I got here, I thought, well, that title sounds awfully academic. And so I debated about whether to use that. But uh, y'all are a smart bunch, and so pluralistic simply means relating to a system of thought that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. And I'll say that again. Relating to a system of thought that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. In other words, someone could say more than one source or of authority. For example, back when I worked for the oil company, we would often leave for early morning flights out of Nashville. Sometimes we'd fly out of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, but most of the time we flew out of Nashville. And I was, it was probably about 3, 3.30 in the morning when my boss picked me up for the airport. And so there we were going down the Cumberland Parkway in western Kentucky, headed toward I-65. And... Something that Mr. Lyle said to me, knowing my faith and my beliefs, he said, Greg, here's my problem with Christianity. You talk to any Christian and they'll tell you it's the only way. And I don't remember exactly what my response was. I know that at 3.30 in the morning, pitch dark outside, thinking to myself, am I going to be asleep before we get to I-65 or sometime uh, a few minutes thereafter? I had a habit of waking up when uh, we were pulling into long-term parking. Uh, But I don't remember exactly how I responded. I know I would have a lot more to say now than I did back then. But... Church, don't miss his, his comment because his comment stems from the fact that he is living in a pluralistic society. Now, this is the single biggest problem that God's people have always had is that there are other people who believe other things And that they get drawn into the idea, well, maybe there is more than one way. Now, that's not to say that you all gather here this morning and say, you know, uh, Islam, Islam's on the right track. They got some some good, good thinking going on there. Or you didn't walk in here this morning thinking, you know, I might just become a Buddhist. I think, I think that might be that might be pretty cool. That might be the way to go. Instead of, instead of being a Christian, I could be a Buddhist. So, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, I'm not thinking that the flock here at the Hohenwald Church of Christ is entertaining such thoughts. But, pluralism 
this idea that there can be more than one God. And if you recall the songs that we just sang, and thank you, Steve, uh, that was all about, you know, the reading this morning is all about there being one God. Hear, O Israel, the Shema that, that Rick read this morning, something that the Israelites would have recited when they got up in the morning, they would have recited it before they went to bed at night. And how does it begin? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Now see, that was a big deal. Because that alone separated them from all the other people that were around them. All the other people on the planet that would have worshipped multiple gods and believed that there were multiple gods. And so they were reminding themselves every morning and every night that, you know, our God is just one. One God. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus says, I and the, am the, excuse me, I and the Father are one. And so there is just one. But... Do we live our lives in such a way that people could look at us and truly say, or when we take hard inventory of our lives, do we really live in such a way that we are only worshiping one God? Might seem like a tough question this morning, but let's look into Ezekiel 14. So we get started with this. Ezekiel 14, beginning with verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, when any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I the Lord will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the people of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Repent, turn from your idols, and renounce all your detestable practices. Now church family, don't miss this. Because who is his audience here? It's the elders. It's supposed to be among the most faithful men in the community. And so they sit down before him. And then a word of, from the Lord comes to him. And if you will notice, the word hearts is listed three different times just in those six different verses. Those six verses. It mentions hearts. Where were their idols? Because so many times... When we look in the Old Testament and the children of Israel are struggling with idolatry, struggling with the temptation to assimilate and be like the people around them. 
then they actually go as far as to set up altars. Or they would go to these places like Bethel, where they, there were known to be pagan altars erected. And they would make an offering there. It was kind of like, hey, we want to cover all our bases. We're still children of Yahweh, but all these other people around us, they may be on to something. So we're going to go and we're going to make uh, a sacrifice at this pagan altar. Although they didn't necessarily think of it as a pagan altar. No, no, this is not what's going on in Ezekiel. What Ezekiel is dealing with here, in looking at the elders of Israel, is, is that they have set up idols, where church? In their hearts. Okay? So this isn't just about ancient Israelites who would worship false or pagan gods. No, this is about people. People who, by all accounts, seem to be faithful to the one true God. But he's telling one of his prophets, you need to preach to them. You need to tell them that their idolatry is much more subtle and in some ways much more dangerous because they have set up these idols in their hearts. Something that is termed as a stumbling block. You ever stumbled? You know what it's like to trip over something? And so that's exactly what's going on here because we set up idols, church, in our hearts and they cause us to stumble. Those idols cause us to sin. They drive that wedge between us and God. Now see, we wonder this thing about idolatry and why it's such a big deal to God. After all, uh, Exodus 20 we know is the Ten Commandments, where the Ten Commandments are found. And Exodus 20 opens this way, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, he could have just said, Hey, don't have any other gods before me. But he gives them a reason, doesn't he? He says, because I'm the Lord your God, who did what, church? Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Doing a Bible study out at Hope Center. And one thing I do is I start in Genesis and give them an overview of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then we talk about Joseph. Because then understanding Joseph's story is how the people got into Egypt in the first place. If we ever wonder, well, they were Israelites. How did they get down in Egypt? And of course, knowing Joseph's story and the famine and the brothers coming down there, that's how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. And over a period, they became slaves in that land. And then they cried out to God. And we do, a, we do an overview of the first 20 chapters of Exodus. And I cover that pretty rapidly in about four weeks. And in those first 20 chapters of Exodus, God is revealing his na nature to these people now. 
But one of the things that he reveals is that he hears their cries, church. Let's never forget that. He says when he calls Moses through that burning bush, he says, I have heard the cries of my people. And why is that important to us thousands of years later, church? Because he still hears our cries today, amen? He still hears our prayers today. And so, and so I, I encourage people to understand that God is a God who hears people crying out to Him. But over and over and over again throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout what we typically call the Old Testament, God reminds them, that I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. And it gets to a point where he says, I'm the one who brought your ancestors. In other words, he's reminding them, the reason you're living in the choice land is because I brought your ancestors here. I brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so the reason God has such a problem with idolatry is because it's this idea that all the stuff you fabricated, all the gods that you can create and make up, they didn't bring you out of slavery. They didn't hear your cries. And so that's why idolatry is a big deal to God. And one of the best books I've written on idolatry uh, in Christianity is Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. And one of the quotes from that book says, More than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God. That our security and value rest in our own wisdom and strength. Excuse me, wisdom, strength, and performance. Now, Keller brings up a valuable point. That one of the gods that we can erect in our hearts without even knowing it is the idea that we're going to rely on self. That we don't give God glory for anything we've got. We become a Christian, we come and we worship, but our worship and our Christian thoughts don't resonate into our everyday life. The idea that what we have, that what we've accomplished is a gift of God. And that this, this idea that no, God, you know, I'm, I'm a self-made person. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I worked hard. I achieved the education or I went to the school of hard knocks. And I have worked my tail off. And so, I deserve every bit of this because of how hard I've worked. And nowhere in there. Or maybe subtly at times, giving some glory and credit to God. But the idea that what we have, what we've accomplished, is because of our own wisdom. Our own success. And we don't praise God for it. And see, that's how subtle, church, that idolatry can be. That's how subtle we can be people who are, uh, 
who find ourselves practicing pluralism without even realizing it. Other scripture I want us to look at is over in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. I recently made, maybe it was last week, made reference to going before the Peter and John going before uh, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and uh, and then eventually they're asked to leave the room, and uh, one of their noted teachers of the law uh, then spoke to them, spoke to the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Well, this is actually that same scene. This is going on a little earlier, though. Listen to what Peter says, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called to account today for an act of kindness, excuse me, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And so he's quoting from Hebrew scripture there. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men... They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. At church, a few things going on there. One is that last thing we read, that these educated men that make up the Jewish ruling council, or the Sanhedrin, notice that Peter and John are not guys that have diplomas on their walls, so to speak. They are unschooled, ordinary folks. And isn't that one of the beauties of our faith? Is that you don't have to have a seminary education to understand it. That these men had faith, and through that faith, they had courage And so they are able to speak boldly and say, the reason that man was healed is because of the one you crucified, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they speak boldly to power, saying, there is no other name by which we are saved. And it's in John 14 that Jesus reminds us of this. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, isn't it, church? And so that's why it becomes problematic when we in our lives, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying we, Because in preparing for this, I started noticing some of my own tendencies. My own tendencies about where I spend my time. 
one of, I heard Scott Sager, and the last time we had a men's night here, Scott Sager, who preaches up in Nashville, and he's a vice president at Lipscomb University, he spoke at our men's night. And one time I was in a, in a class that Sager was teaching, and uh, he reached in his pocket, and uh, he held up, I don't have mine on me right now, but he reached in his pocket, and he held up his smartphone. And he says, if we don't think these are idols, we are kidding ourselves. And he's exactly right. I used to notice myself spending so much time on social media. And no, social media folks, I'm not going to go on another rant about social media. Just to use as an example though. Because you see in this photograph here, you know, what... What are some, what, what's a lot of what's up there? It's social media, isn't it? It's Twitter, it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Messenger. Uh, WhatsApp is on there, I think, and there's, there's plenty of stuff on there. Some of us may use some of that and not other parts of it. But the reason I took Facebook off my phone years ago is because, and I even had a brother in Christ tell me, not a member of this congregation, but... Uh, uh, someone who stops in to see me from time to time and, and uh, he said, yeah, I had to take Facebook off my phone. He said it was like muscle memory. He said if I had one moment of boredom, he said my phone came out of my pocket and I was opening up my Facebook app and scrolling and then realizing there was really not nothing there for me to really see. That I had more important things I needed to be doing. And I told him I did the same thing. But here's something I haven't taken off my phone. Now, if I, if I showed a screenshot of my home screen, you would see two Bible apps, and you would see a, a prayer app, and all that kind of good stuff. But i got to be honest with you, church. One of the first things I go to is in the upper right-hand corner. It probably needs to come off my phone. It's my Yahoo Sports app. Okay, and on a night like last night, when... Nashville SC is playing, and the Braves are playing in the playoffs. Hope there's no Dodger fans in the house. Sorry about your luck, but there's plenty of series left. But the, the Braves are playing in the playoffs, and, and uh, you know there's, there's news about who of the Titans are going to be out for their Monday night game against the Bills. The Tennessee Volunteers were playing what turned out to be a tighter game than some might have expected in Knoxville. Uh, the Predators were playing their second game of the season. There was plenty to look at. But in knowing that I was going to preach this this morning, I left all that alone. I cut up, caught up with it later. And I was present in that time that I had set aside to spend with my wife. and something we were doing together. But I can't tell you how many times in recent days... I started reaching for my phone to open up an app or to go to TennesseeTitans.com and see how practice went that day. Like, like I can really do anything about that. I can't do anything about people that have pulled hamstrings. I can't. I wish I could heal them. <laughs> you know, but I can't. And so that stuff becomes an idol for me, church. 
It's something that this week I said, well, I can feel good about myself because I don't spend near as much time on social media as I used to. But I have other idols. And I need to get rid of them. Because I've let them enter my heart. And I've let them be a potential stumbling block. A wedge between me and my almighty Father. What is an idol, Keller asks. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And I say this, church, because it's easy for us to think about something that drives a wedge between us and God or something that occupies our time. But in thinking of my own definition of idolatry or the danger of idolatry, something I came up this week is it's not about what you bow down to, but where you turn for peace and comfort. Let me say that again. It's not about what you bow down to, but where you turn for peace and comfort. Because here's the problem. It is Jesus and only Jesus that freed us from the eternal slavery of sin. When we were in that moment that we realized we needed to be free from that bondage, it was Jesus we turned to. It was the name of Jesus that we invoked. We make that confession that says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we enter the watery grave and we rise from that water of baptism a new creature. But then in living the life that follows, how good are we, how faithful are we at turning to Jesus and Jesus alone? When we need peace, when we need comfort, because God, church, still hears the cries of His people. Your social media app, or your sports app, or whatever it might be in your life that might give you the warm fuzzies, did not shed its blood for your sin. That church is Jesus and only Jesus. And so let us, we, need to be living our lives in such a way that Jesus truly is first. May God help us to be those people. The challenge has been heard. It's before us all. Now it's up to us as to how we respond to it. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet declared that Jesus is the Son of God, we give you that opportunity. We extend the invitation. And if you're with us and need the prayers of a faithful body, then we extend the invitation for that reason also. Let's stand and sing.